So uh, this is a pretty terrifying moment in my life because next week I get to celebrate the 16th birthday of my daughter, Olivia. Uh, And I say it's terrifying because it's like the slow knife in your heart to see your daughter growing up and and to know that my daughter's on the clock to leave me and to be launched out into the world. And this last week I've been thinking about the moment I first met her. Like um, on on an August day, 16 years ago, I got to watch my beautiful wife give birth to this human, to this human that I hadn't met. And I got to see the doctors and the nurses take her from the delivery bed over to the baby burger lamp where they put kids. And and I got to walk over in fear and trepidation and excitement to meet my daughter for the first time. And she was so furious. She was so angry about everything and angry about meeting me and angry about being brought into the world. And, And in that moment, I felt a couple things. Um, I felt on one hand, a tremendous multiplication of my capacity to love and to receive love. Um, I think in that moment, I understood a little bit more about the heart of Father God and uh, my capacity to be gentle and sensitive and, and to be a, a dad that wants to be nurturing of a daughter and present with a daughter. Like I felt all that stuff grow. I also, if I could just be really honest and transparent with you, I also felt a little bit of abject terror. To look at this fragile human being, this daughter, and to know that my wife and I, by God's grace, bought her into this world, brought her into this world that's so full of evil, that's so full of suffering, um, and, and to basically have a job where like human evil and suffering is kind of the daily occurrence that I get to deal with as a pastor, and to know that we live in a world that women are not honored in, They're not treated with respect and dignity. To know that we live in a world where it seems like uncertainty rules the day. In that moment, all I could think about is, oh man, I hope we did the right thing, right? Like I hope her life is gonna go well. I hope hope that she's not gonna suffer unduly in this world. And I know she is gonna suffer. And in that moment, what I was really aware of was our fragility on this planet. Like we're really small, We're really small and we're really frail and our relationships are frail and our bodies are frail. And there's so many things that are out of our control that as a dad, I just felt the weight of all of it. So in this conversation today about the sovereignty of God and our freedom to lack control, we we have to start with just an honest assessment of how scary and how big the world is. For ancient human beings back in the day, they knew that bad things happened. Uh, They knew that sometimes you would plant the crops and the rains wouldn't come. That would result in death and devastation. They, They knew that sometimes plagues would hit a village and you would have no recourse except to grieve and mourn and try to rebuild your life. Ancient man knew that sometimes natural disasters take place and there's nothing you can do to prepare for it. They come as they come and you just have to stand in the fray and try to live. Volcanoes erupt and tsunamis hit and tornadoes devastate towns. Now, what's interesting is for ancient man, they were aware of the fact that it's not just natural things taking place, but we live in a world, we live in a cosmos where there are invisible forces. So for ancient man, uh, you can't really control much, right? You can't really control much in this world. So what do you do? Well, you, you do the few basic things that seem to work in your family and in your village. You sacrifice to the gods. Uh, you, you try to not offend spirits. You make sure that when you get in the boat to sail out to sea, that you make sacrifices in hopes that you're going to come back and that the sea won't devour you. 
Now, I say all that because something really interesting started to happen around the time of the scientific revolution, uh, that big, broad period known as the Enlightenment. And what started to happen is our ability to engage with the created world based on science and based on technology started exponentially growing, right? And what started to happen is we started to believe that, yeah, the world's kind of scary, but through our intellect and through our capacity to reason, we can actually shape creation to be a less scary place. Sure, disease exists, uh, but now we have vaccines and, and that's a big deal. Sure, the world is full of chaos, but we can actually hope through education to bring about utopia, right? Sure, sometimes the rain doesn't fall and crops die, but now we've got all kinds of ways in which we can actually build crops that are more resistant to the natural world. And what started to happen is human confidence that we could actually create a world that was more safe and more friendly to us started to spike. And then a couple things happened. The first thing that happened was this little thing known as World War I. And in World War I, what took place was the death of somewhere around 17 million people, 17 million people, and many of the great ideals that we were evolving and that we could control the world in which we live, those ideals started to go up in smoke as civilization tried to unmake itself through our technology. Now, things got even worse in World War II. In World War II, the estimates on the low ends are 50 million On the high end, 80 million, so just let those numbers sink in, 50 to 80 million people died in World War II, and the very technology that we thought was going to help us make the world a safer place actually led towards more chaos and more threats of destruction. And I just want to stop here because the world's big and it's really scary, but that's all kind of out there. Can we just be honest about our personal world being a really scary place? Like the truth is, The truth is, we live in this moment that feels really unsure, doesn't it? Um, I'm about to turn 40 years old, and I don't remember a time where I felt more fearful or disillusioned in the political process in our country. It's chaotic. It's scary. Uh, It seems that our leaders are failing us, and integrity can't be found. And we live in this moment where some of the old things that we thought we had actually put to bed, we're realizing that those things are actually alive and well in the good old U.S. of A. White nationalism on the rise, right? Hate groups on the rise. We live in this crazy moment where uh, people are driving vehicles into crowds for the, for the express purpose of trying to kill as many people as they can kill. That's scary to me, scary to me. We live in a moment where North Korea is bonkers, Australia is crazy, right? We, we excuse me, I said Australia. <laughs> Russia, Australia is kind of crazy, but for different reasons. Like, people are like, is Australia a threat? <laughs> Dang it. Add that one to the list. <laughs> Russia, Russia is scary right now, right? And if I could be honest, like I, I'm just kind of a, a guy standing in the middle. I'm, I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat, but my confidence in the good old USA is not an all-time high either right now. The world is crazy. And not only is the world crazy, but the older I get, the more I'm realizing that my body is a lot more fragile than what I realized. 
right? I can't control the aging of my body, right? Like, like you can work out all you want. You can drink wheatgrass all you want. You can go to yoga all you want, but here's what you can't do. You can't demand that your cells multiply in a way that's healthy and not cancerous. You can't control that. You're not in charge of what your DNA does. You're not in charge of things like arthritis that might be coming for you. So you can do your best, right? You you can sort of box the air and try the best you can to be healthy and to take care of yourself and all that's good stewardship of your body. But at the end of the day, like every ache, every pain, every gray hair that pops out of my beard is a reminder. I really don't control a whole lot down here. And then here's what's true. Like the things that are most important to us are the most impossible to control. And what I mean by that is our families are pretty precarious, you don't have a guarantee if you're single that you're going to find that spouse that you dream about. There's no guarantee. And then if you are married, there's no guarantee that your spouse is going to love you and honor you. There's no guarantee your spouse is going to be faithful. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that your kids are going to grow up to love Jesus. There's no guarantee that you're going to launch your kids out into the world and and they're going to really have a beautiful success story of thriving and health and life. Like the stories that come across my desk every single day remind me that families are fragile. They're really fragile. What happens in the midst of all that is, is that the sober reality is that we're really small And we live on this planet that's hurling around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. And there's really not a lot that we can do to guarantee that we're going to have a safe, a safe or a comfortable existence in our little span of life. And I think what that does for many of us is it causes us to at least try to fight for the illusion of control. We can't really control much of anything. We can't really control much of anything. So let's fight for the illusion of control. Let's try to control relationships either by manipulating or bullying. Or maybe you've been hurt so many times that the way that you try to control your relationships is just to withdraw. You've been burned so many times that instead of putting yourself out there again and risking vulnerability and risking getting hurt, it's easier to just sort of keep people at arm's length, keep your church at arm's length or keep your spouse at arm's length. What is that? That's control. That's attempting to try to control the world in which we live. Here's what I know about me. Um, When I get the most angry, and not angry about good, just things, because there is such a thing as beautiful anger that reflects the glory of God. But when I just have random stupid anger in traffic or in airports, like here's what I'm aware of about airports. They exist for my sanctification, right? The whole purpose of, of airports is to just show me how far I have not come in my growth to be like Jesus, And what I notice in random moments where I'm just furious, I want to lash out and I want to yell at people or I want to get in a fist fight in line, like what I realize is I'm actually really angry because the things I want to control are out of my control. What happens all the time with kids is we either either try to control them, we try to control them by over-functioning trying to make them into our image and trying to make sure that they don't go down the wrong road. So we, we become helicopter parents, which is sort of the new American norm. 
Or on the other hand, we know that we can't control their future. So we just sort of withdraw and we don't function in a way that's responsible and reasonable. And all of that, friends, all of that leads to the greatest mark of trying to control the world that we can possibly measure. And that's just prayerlessness, right? You want to know what prayerlessness is? Prayerlessness is a lack of confidence in God and it's intense confidence in self. So my prayerlessness as a follower of Jesus actually reflects two things. I don't really think that God's sovereign and that he's powerful. And I really think that I have the capacity to fix me or to fix you or to fix this place that we live in. And the result of all that, if we could just be honest, if we could just be honest, the chaos of the world the precarious nature of our relationships, the lack of ability to control recessions or make sure that the future is going to be better than what the past was for you, it leads towards an attempt to wrestle existence to the ground with our human strength and our human effort, and we can't do it. And the result of trying and failing is that a lot of us are really freaked out, we're really stressed out, and anxiety's through the roof. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, in some ways, it has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus came to actually restore us to full humanity. Jesus came to restore us to thriving and flourishing in the midst of a chaotic world. And for Jesus to actually restore us to full humanity, for Jesus to be able to set us free to lack control and trust in God's sovereignty, Jesus himself had to be tempted to try to control his life. And he had to, in that moment of temptation, feel what it's like to be a human being in a chaotic, scary world that wants to take the reins away from God and try to be our own gods. In in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's this really profoundly human and moving moment in the life of Jesus. And what you see is that Jesus is about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed. And in his, in his full humanity, Jesus is experiencing deep anxiety about the suffering of the cross that he's about to endure. The scripture says that he goes with his friends to this garden to pray and he falls on the ground and he's crying out to the father. And here's his prayer. It's this really beautiful, profound human prayer. It's father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Here's what he's saying. If there's any other way for you to be glorified, Father, by redeeming humanity, if there's any other way to take sinful people and rebellious people and make them sons and daughters, if there's any other way to pay the penalty for their sin and to remake humanity to be beautiful and whole again, if there's any other way, please, let's go with plan B. I don't want the physical suffering. I don't want the spiritual suffering. I don't want to experience for the first time in all eternity separation from the Father as I bear the wrath of sin against humanity. I don't want to do this. What's so beautiful in that moment is that Jesus is crying out about his temptation to take control back from the Father and he prays this crazy prayer three times. It's really simple. It's really beautiful. Here's what he says. But not my will, but yours be done. In the garden, 
in the arena of temptation, Jesus in his humanity is wrestling with the desire to try to control his future and control his life. And in that moment, he releases full and total control to the father, trusting his sovereignty and putting his future and his days in the hands of the one that's able to raise him even from the dead. Now, we, we would be, we would be, revisionist historians if we didn't talk about the immediate experience of Jesus as he prayed that prayer, right? Because Jesus doesn't surrender to the Father's sovereignty and immediately everything become really happy and cheerful and beautiful. Jesus surrenders to the Father's sovereignty and you know what happens? The betrayer seems to win the day. And Pilate seems to win the day. And the bloodthirsty mob that cries out, crucify him, seems to win the day. And the torturers that rip the meat off his back seem to win the day. All the forces of evil are lined up against Jesus. And all of those forces of evil really do seem to win on Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Jesus dies. Can we just stop here for a second? That's not the message that evangelicalism is selling right now. Evangelicalism in the U.S. is not selling the message, surrender control to the sovereignty of God and you may go through the pain of crucifixion and being laid in a tomb. We're not really selling that. We're selling a different message. If you follow and love Jesus and pray to him, here's what you'll get, all the things that you need to be happy. Worship Jesus and you'll get the spouse you need to be happy. Worship Jesus, you'll get the job you need to be happy. Worship Jesus and your kids won't be rebellious and they won't get sick. Worship Jesus and our country can be a Christian nation and everything will go great. Worship Jesus and all the things you need for a thriving, flourishing life that are external to him. You'll get all that stuff in good time. And can we just say like, like raw prosperity gospel, like I think people's sensibilities are starting to sniff that out more and more. Like the total charlatans that are selling healing oils on late night TV and making tons of money. I think most of us are like, yeah, that guy's full of it. We can spot that. We're kind of cynical enough to not buy what they're selling. But the subtle message of Jesus being a means to an end is as popular as it's ever been. What happens to Jesus is he surrenders to the sovereignty of the father and immediately experiences profound loss and suffering. But here's what's crazy. In the midst of the profound loss and suffering, what happens on Easter Sunday morning is the sovereign God's verdict that no, Pilate's not in charge. No, the angry mob is not in charge. No, those soldiers that drove nails to the hands and feet of Jesus are not in charge. All the powers of chaos and evil are not in charge. The one that gets the last word is the sovereign God that has the capacity and ability and the resolve to work all of history ultimately together for his plan. He's raised from the dead. Jesus raised from the dead. Now, for us as followers of him, as people that are questioning what will it look like to follow him, that leads us, that leads us to a pretty big wrestle. Will following Jesus require you to lay down control? And I want to say loudly and unequivocally, to follow Jesus is to relinquish control. You cannot love and follow Jesus and be in the driver's seat of your life. 
and the, the anemic Christianity that's happening in the West that lacks the capacity for suffering and evangelism and engaging in the darkness of this world, that anemic, powerless, impotent Christianity that's so widespread is directly related to this idea that you can have Jesus and still be the God of your life. You can have Jesus and still direct your sexuality and your money and your time wherever you want to direct those things. And and it's actually the opposite of what Jesus says. If anyone would follow me, he has to take up my cross, meaning you have to die to self. You're no longer God. You're no longer the boss. And and by the way, like, let's just make sure that we include the, the small print. To take up that cross doesn't mean that you don't repeatedly and constantly try to lay it down. We all do that. We all try to take control back from Jesus repeatedly. I do that daily. But a Christian's journey in sanctification is a journey of growing by the grace of God to relinquish control in deeper and deeper ways into the hands of the only one that has the authority and the goodness to be in charge. So with that in mind, here's what I wanna do. I just wanna take a couple of minutes and serve you by walking through a beautiful passage that's all about being free to lack control. That's about the freedom of relinquishing self into the hands of God and letting him shape and form your identity and your future. So Romans chapter eight, I wanna give you a few things. I wanna start by looking at confidence to lack control. Where does that confidence come from? Because it sounds terrifying to give up control. And that confidence to lack control is rooted in two things. It's rooted, first of all, in a new identity that's given to you in Jesus. That confidence to lack control is rooted in a new identity that's created by the power of the gospel to reshape who you are as a human being. This is Romans chapter eight, starting in verse one. Follow along. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Stop here for just a second. Here's what he's saying. He's unpacking what's been the big idea in the whole book of Romans that we as human beings can't through our rituals or our moralistic behavior, we can't ever undo the hard wiring of our souls to sin against God. And we can't actually, we can't actually build a rope ladder to get to God in our own good deeds because we're always bent towards sinning. So God does something breathtaking and scandalous. He sends Jesus to live the life that we could never live. A life of pure and perfect obedience, not just externally, but internally. And Jesus then actually, as the perfect sinless son of God, takes all of our sin on himself. He pays the ultimate penalty for our crimes against God. And what happens through faith in Jesus is this crazy exchange. It's this freedom from the law of sin and death and this invitation to receiving 
alien righteousness that you didn't create that you can't control. Meaning Jesus's perfect track record is counted as yours and his beautiful grace and righteousness is counted as yours. And what happens is your track record of addiction and lust and idolatry and pride and racism got counted as Jesus's on the cross and were brought into freedom. This is why he's saying there's no condemnation, not because becoming a Christian means that you're better than anybody, but because becoming a Christian means you trust in the one who's perfect and who is not you. You trust his life, you trust his death, and God gives you a gift of righteousness. Now look at what it says in verse 10, because it's not just justification that's the source of this new identity, but look at this. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Now listen to this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Now stop here for just a second. How do you release control? How can you have the confidence to get out of the driver's seat of your life and rest in the sovereign work of God and yield to his will in your life? Well, it starts with realizing that becoming a Christian is not trying to keep up with some list of demands. Becoming a Christian is receiving a new identity that changes everything that you're forgiven, that you're adopted, that you're justified, that you're made right with God. And why this is so important in talking about the chaos of the world is this. If your core identity is in your family, what are you going to do when your family starts spinning into chaos? If your core identity is as a mom and your children rebel and they reject you, what happens? Your whole world's devastated. You're going to try to control. You're going to try to manipulate. You're you're not going to be able to yield into the sovereign hands of God. If your identity is formed and created by your career, like the core of who I am, my name, my identity as, as pastor, it's, it's pastor Josh, it's church planner Josh. What happens if God takes this church away? What happens if I get to a point where I'm sick and I can't lead anymore? Well, my whole world is unmade. And that'll result in me trying to cling and, and, and control circumstances. If our identity is in money, we'll try to control our life through money. Here's what the gospel of Jesus says. The invitation of Christ is come and receive an identity that's not rooted in anything that can ever change. 
the gospel of Jesus is that your identity is not as an employee or a spouse or a Republican or a Democrat or whatever it is that you look at as the core name of who you are to become a Christian means that your core identity is loved. It's son, it's daughter, it's adopted one, it's purified one. And this creates unbelievable security and freedom in a world that's chaotic because the one who matters more than anyone else has already given his verdict on your life through Jesus. It means you have great freedom to work from acceptance in your relationship, to work from acceptance in your career, to work from acceptance as you engage with the brokenness of the world, to not try to cling to all these false identities. This leads Secondly, this identity leads secondly to new security in Jesus. If you're adopted and all of the righteousness of Jesus is counted as yours, can, can I just say something you've probably heard before if you live in the Midwest, but it should shock you every time you say it? When God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, who has no sin, who is holy, pure, other, and sovereign, if your faith is in Jesus, when that father looks at you, the same affection that he has for his son, Jesus, he has for you. That should freak you out. That should change everything. That results then in new security. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 8, starting in verse 28. Coming out of this new identity, look at the security that we can have in a scary world. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, maybe you think Paul is an idealist and doesn't know about the reality of what this world's like. Well, actually, when he says all things, he's writing from the experience of one that suffered profoundly in his relationship with Jesus. Now, look what he says next. For those who are called according to this purpose, for those whom he foreknew, another way to put it is foreloved, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then should we say to these things? Listen to this. If that is your new identity, that God has put his love on you, he's redeemed you, he's forgiven you, he's cleansed you. If that's happened to you, what do you say about that? Well, listen to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who should bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Remember the world that we live in, it's full of anxiety and fear and fragile bodies and fragile relationships and political forces that fail us. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Look at this, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hey friends, look right here. How is it possible for the early church to live in such a scary moment in history where they were so weak and so poor and all the powers of Rome were against them, how was it possible for those poor, needy, fragile human beings to live lives of such breathtaking courage and faith that the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire? How is that possible? Here's what they knew. If your identity is rooted in the finished work of Jesus, you're loved, you're accepted, you're adopted, then that means there's nothing in this world, not Caesar himself, who can pluck you out of the Father's hand, which means that your response in the midst of unsure circumstances and difficult days can be one of radical, radical peace and courage. Our security is not the security of a painless life, but listen, it's this. If God's loved you so much that he sent Jesus to redeem you and die in your place, it means that he's in every difficult circumstance that you face and you can repeatedly put control back in his hands. It means that the worst things that you can face, and as a Christian, you're gonna face them. Death and loss and sin, the worst things that you can endure and face, which we all are going to face, it means that none of those things are the result of God's wrath against you because Jesus bore all the wrath. None of those things have the power to get the last word on your story. If your faith is in Jesus, there's an author to your story. There will be a beautiful ending to your story. And though the world is scary, nothing in this world is punishment for those that are in Jesus because there is no more punishment. There's no wrath against you. Jesus drank every drop of it. The Father's heart for you is one of delight and joy and commitment. And it means that we have a guarantee, we have a guarantee, an unequivocal guarantee that if he's done all that to redeem you, He will finish what he started and he'll get the last word on your life. To trust in Jesus is to stand in this present time that's full of anxiety and fear and chaos. And it is, guys. Creation's longing, that's what Paul says in this chapter. Your longing for Jesus to return and make all things new. You you know what a white supremacist rally is? It's creation longing for the justice and the righteousness and the goodness of God to remake us where instead of being so foolish and wicked, we can see clearly what is true and what's honorable and what's beautiful because God will give us eyes to see creation's longing, you mere longing. And to be a Christian is to stand here cultivating patience as we wait for the promises of God to become sight. Let me read this to you. This is Robert Wilkin. He says, the singular mark of patience is not endurance or fortitude, 
but hope. To be impatient is to live without hope. Patience is grounded in the resurrection. It is life oriented towards a future that is God's doing. And its sign is longing, not so much to be released from the ills of the present, but anticipation of the good to come. What what am I saying? I'm saying this. To relinquish control to the living God is to stand in the scariness of the world and to do two things at the same time. To look back on the finished work of Jesus and to remember afresh that you're loved and that nothing can separate you from the hand of God. That you're adopted, you're redeemed, and your confidence is not your circumstances, it's in Christ alone, period. And simultaneously in the chaos of the world to look back and to look ahead in longing to the reality that he that started a good work in you will finish it. And not cancer, not divorce, not depression or anxiety, not anything you face in this world will have the authority and power to get the last word on you. He gets the last word. He's the sovereign creator and redeemer. What do you do in that? Well, you wait. Christian life is a life of waiting. We wait. We wait for the promise to become sight. We wait and we pray and we long and we stand today. We stand today as people who don't lose their hope because of changes in the world. We stand as people that even in the midst of suffering have unshakable hope because our hope is in Jesus. So as we, as we close this today, I want to ask you, how, how's that control working out for you? <laughs> how is it working out for you? Is it leading to more joy and delight and peace? Or is your attempt to control self and to control life and to control circumstances, is it actually leading to the thinning out of your soul and your joy? To follow Jesus is to say, all of my life belongs to you. You're infinitely trustworthy. I want to relinquish control of all of it. And then, you know what becomes the most important prayer for a Christian? Same thing Jesus prayed in the garden. Hey God, I'm really struggling with this. Can you please fix this? But even if you don't, not my will, but yours be done. Hey God, my my marriage is really bad right now and I'm really suffering. Would you fix it? But even if you don't fix it, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to stand in hope that you're going to finish what you started. God, I really hate cancer. Would you take this from me? Would you heal this? But even if you don't, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you're going to finish what you started and that there's a day coming where faith becomes sight and every promise that you have by faith today is going to be made tangible, tasteable, and more real than any pain, any suffering you faced in this life.